This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Humor is steeped in belief. How we see the world shapes our jokes, and jokes shape how we see the world. I'm Ben Fort, and I've spent years creating comedy and practicing the Christian faith. These two worlds have different languages, and this miniseries is a place where they can talk. Whether you're a Christian, a comic, or both, let's explore where humor connects to your funny beliefs. This is a story of getting burned out on comedy and learning to love it again. My burnout story is not unique, and it's not unique to comedy. In fact, I wasn't able to see my own approach to comedy clearly until I saw it play out in other people in contexts. Freelance work, side hustles, and even in ministry and 9-to-5 careers. That approach is... Discovering I enjoy something, then dreaming about how my life can include more of it, deciding exactly what that looks like, and then tying my hopes to achieving that specific vision, regardless of my current limits and resources. That was way too academic, so here's a song about it. This muffin I made this muffin and Shelly says it's delicious just like Dave says it's delicious and Dave doesn't like anything just Radiohead and this muffin look at this muffin you can see it on my insta kara said it was beautiful she used the heart eye emoji and bedford mama 12 was so jealous she used seven o's can you see me at a pop-up Giving out samples to Dave's and Shelly's While wearing an apron with a minimalist logo Of this beautiful muffin, this delicious muffin I made Maybe I could make money Not much, just enough for a date night Enough to never fly spirit I could fly with leg room Enough to spend my Aldi quarter And eat samples at Trader Joe's What if I could quit my job? I could own a muffin store And never have to wear khakis 
We'll pay to wear jeans on a Friday. The speakers would blast music from college, and I'd never see Nathan again. Can you see me at a party? What do you do? Oh, me? <laughs> I make muffins. Yeah, over on South Main with plans for Dallas. We're closed on Mondays and my birthday cause I can. Can you see me in Kenya with a boy named Odongo who's only alive by the power of muffin? He's going to die if I don't quit insurance and share this gift with the world. This muffin is everything. It could be everything. Like Kara smiling on Insta. Like Dave flying Delta. Like Shelly in anyone but Nathan. This muffin could be anything. This starts with very good things. It's good to make a delicious muffin. It's good to share muffins. And it's good to enjoy others' enjoyment. And dreaming is good. Asking what if is good. The trouble for me starts when what if slides into if only. When I shift from what I have, like a muffin and friends that enjoy it, to what I don't have, Enough money, a job I like, feeling like I'm significant and making a difference. Hyper-specific dreams get tied up with personal hopes and failure becomes devastating. For some people, that risk of failure keeps them from trying new things, from even taking small steps. Not me. I'm prone to disregard my limits and the limits of others. Here's how it made me miserable. Personal limits, pre-burnout. I moved to Chicago to study comedy at Second City, specifically to complete the year-long sketch writing program. It ends with your class producing a sketch review, which involves actors, auditions, a director, props, costumes, lights, sound effects, music, and marketing. My class show, Sketches with Wolves, was a success. We sold out four nights on a second city stage. A minor league stage, but we sold it out. We were rock stars. We learned how to put on a show, and afterwards I felt confident about doing this myself. I quickly learned how much we had going for us. We were given a veteran director, a primetime spot on a stage, rehearsal space next to a train stop, professional lights and sound, the prestige of Second City, which attracts an audition pool and an audience. And we had our friends' excitement for our first big show in the city. A graduated improv student could audition to be on a house team at their theater, but when I was there, sketch comedy had no institutional path. You had to self-produce. It was on you to find a stage, rehearsal space, a director, actors, Someone to run lights and sound, an audience, and a producer, which was you. And that means emailing everyone all the time. 
Each of these roles requires specific skills, talent, and experience, including producing. Comedy writing classes are, in part, about learning your personal limits. The positive side of this is finding your voice. You find there's a spark when you write about certain things in a certain way. People pay attention. And unfortunately, to discover your voice, you have to discover the limits of your voice. When you write about other things in other styles, the response is polite. That part isn't as fun. This discovery process starts over when you self-produce, with every part of production. You won't be great at anything at first, but you find you have some natural talent in select places. Me, I have a knack for selecting and editing transition music between sketch scenes. I would have been happy just writing and handling music. But emails don't write themselves. And for my scenes to be staged, I had to take on the drudgery of coordination. I self-produced a sketch show called An Overhead Project. We used an old-school overhead projector to do weird effects and transitions. It went pretty good, and I learned a lot. But I was feeling the limits of sketch comedy, the kinds of stories you can tell. I loved the longer stories of television and movies, but writing for these mediums felt very far off. But now I had some experience with a stage, so I decided to write a play. I thought this was accepting my limits, but I didn't respect playwriting as a new medium and theater as a new art form. Theater is comedy adjacent, but much more complex. I had spent a year learning sketch writing and production, and then decided to produce the first theater script that popped in my head. My play, a fantasy parody called Chester and the Unbearable Burden, parts one and two, became my muffin store. It had to be produced on a stage. It had to have a cast of 12. My friend and I started a theater company to produce it. I decided to direct it myself, not because I had gifting or experience, but because I was unconnected and didn't have options. I had to. At least I thought I did. And that could have worked out. I may have had a knack for directing, but I didn't know because I didn't go through the talent and voice discovery process. I rolled the dice on the crucial role of director and did so with a project I had tied up with my hopes and dreams. The results were mixed enough to be disappointing and mixed enough to keep going. Not only keep going, but go for something bigger, a musical. My friend had an idea for a musical about NBA free agency. I was in. Then the 2011 NBA lockout hit, and we thought, ooh, this is perfect. We wrote a musical comedy about labor negotiations. We learned some limits during my play, like me directing. We found someone else to do that. But with the added layer of music, the emails and coordination grew. I write songs organically with chords, so to give my melodies to others, I had to figure out what notes I was playing and then learn how to write sheet music. We wanted to pay everyone a stipend. This involved raising money, making a pitch deck for investors. We wanted to record a cast album, 
So we launched a $10,000 Kickstarter campaign specifically for that. We got the money, and it was one of the worst months of my life. I ran into my limits as a producer. I'm not good at and don't enjoy organization, coordination, and keeping a ship running. I also ran into the limits of my body, of time, and sleep. When I moved to Chicago, I worked at Starbucks, which didn't take a lot of mental bandwidth. I could write in my head and solve problems while I worked. Then I worked nine to five at an insurance broker, which paid more, but cost more. Writing and producing got pushed to the margins. My train ride, lunch breaks, early mornings, late nights. And while producing the musical, I moved to Michigan for my wife to go to graduate school. Producing the musical was a full-time job on top of a full-time job. I wouldn't have chosen either. The same things that limit me as a producer also limit me as an administrative assistant. But I had to produce to serve the muffin store and work to provide for my family. I was constantly stressed, fell behind at both, and almost lost my job. That's when the anxiety attacks started. Personal limits, post-burnout. The scariest part about walking away from self-producing was doing so in Fort Worth. From a scripted comedy standpoint, it has limits. My theater has produced a lot of improvisers, but only a handful of sketch writing graduates and even fewer sketch directors and producers. I wanted to focus on teaching, but my writing class didn't have enough students to make. I saw this as a chance to teach a comedy songwriting class. It also didn't make. Our theater did have a growing community of writers, thanks to my fellow teacher, TC. Her reaction to a limited comedy scene was to create new opportunities for writers. She started a monthly group called The Writer's Room. So that's where I went, and I brought an idea that had made me giggle years ago, the idea of Lord of the Flies, the musical. And by idea, I mean just one line. I've got the conch, do 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 do. I've got the conch, do 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 do. That's it. So I read Lord of the Flies, which I highly recommend when you're burned out, and I got to work. This first draft was framed as an audition for Lord of the Flies the musical, where I would audition for every role, like Ralph, Jack, and Pig's Head on a Stick. I brought it to the writer's room, not as a muffin store, but as trying out a recipe for friends. It went pretty good. They laughed. But it's hard to gauge the reaction with such a small group of people. Afterwards, TC pulled me aside and said, We need to talk about that. That's the most fun I've seen you have in a long time. I created, and then she cultivated. She wasn't alone. When I set up my songwriting class, I had booked stage time for a student showcase. My class was canceled, but an email still went out that had Ben Fort comedy songwriting on the schedule. Oops. Over the next few days, multiple people told me they were excited about my upcoming music set. They didn't know this was a placeholder for a non-existent class. They just knew their favorite sketches of mine had been songs. I believed them. 
I kept the stage time and went to work on a three-song set, which was all I could do with my limits as a stay-at-home dad. I fleshed out Lord of the Flies and added another literary song, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, which was also barely an idea. I had a chorus that made me laugh. Hey, I think I'm going cray, talking to this raven, talking to this ray. Based on this, I bought a bird puppet and I read, abridged, and memorized the raven. It quickly became my favorite song in my set, but it was by far the most challenging to memorize and recite 19th century poetry on a fairly fast pre-recorded track. I, I really wanted to open with The Raven, but I am limited by my anxiety. I was overwhelmed thinking of opening with such a tightrope. So I started the set sitting down, playing a slower song called I Made This Muffin. Collaborators, pre-burnout. We're limited in our skills, talents, time, and resources. We need other people. Ideally, a collaborator is amazing at their craft, available, in love with your idea, and has a creative voice that harmonizes with yours. Oh, and is either generously compensated for their time or happy to work for free. Finding these partnerships is like finding good friends. It's possible, but it's work and involves time, risk, and failure. Someone may seem like a movie friend, but then you watch a movie and they talk the whole time. Even the best friends and collaborators aren't best for everything. I have musical friends, concert friends, nature friends, talk about it friends, not talk about it friends. Eventually, you know who you go to for what. But what if you don't have time for that? What if your muffin store doesn't have time for that? The play I directed needed costumes, sets, lights, sound, music, and actors. I had a few actors that I loved working with, but that only filled a third of my cast. The production roles were filled by friends of friends, and my audition notices were posted in places next to real theater companies that paid real money. For my first play, we had 16 actors audition for a cast of 12 throw in production roles, and I wasn't just working with, but meeting a dozen people for the first time. It would have been a massive creative gamble for an established veteran director. And I expected each of them to be the ideal collaborator, for free, with me, a first-time director. I had impossible expectations tangled in knots with my dreams and self-worth. I started valuing each team member less as a person and for how well they served my idea of success. Collaborators, post-burnout. My friend Tina saw my three songs. She's a cultivator, but not in comedy. She owns Leaves Book and Tea Shop, where I'm recording right now. At the time, she was experimenting with Friday night events featuring tea-based mocktails and local food vendors. She liked my show and asked if I'd like to put together a comedy night. Cool. I only had three songs. Twelve minutes. 
I needed collaborators, so I asked my friends if they'd like to do an improv set. It was like a pop-up event. One night of comedy. And it went well for everyone. Leaves offered a night of fun, and we liked performing in the space. You know what I loved most? I could just come and play. Tina was the marketer, and she brought the audience. The food vendor did marketing and brought some people. I invited people, but I wasn't responsible for a crowd. And on Tina's end, she wasn't responsible for the entertainment. That was my work. It was my only work, and I could just come and play. That night was an experiment, a test, and afterwards we all assessed. We felt we were onto something, and the idea of a monthly show was floated. I took stock of my limits, and they were very limiting. I was a stay-at-home dad with two kids under three, a great recipe for zero margins. I was also limited by two weekly evening commitments, which meant I couldn't or shouldn't rehearse with others. I told my collaborators I could bring in one new song a month, take it or leave it. They took it. It was fun. We performed under the name L Society, and even though the improv and music were separate, we were a team. We enjoyed each other's talents and enjoyed each other as people. We were glad for the space, and Tina was happy to give it. Last episode, I talked about bombing with a mashup of Cats and Animal Farm. That was at one of the Leaves shows. I was less than my best, and my collaborators told me it was awesome. I told them why it wasn't, and they politely listened. I was accepted as a person and a friend even after failure, and that's the night I truly felt part of the group. Audience. Pre-burnout. After the musical, I got to work on a fictional podcast, driven by the idea of an unlimited audience. My shows in Chicago were limited to Chicagoans who knew about them, and were willing to choose my shows over other options. But a podcast, anyone, anywhere, can listen anytime. It was called Public Domain Universe, a podcast universe of adapted public domain stories, with each arc written by a different writer. For once, I tested the idea before diving in, asking a few writers I trusted if they were interested. Two said yes, and they wrote story arcs based on Cinderella and Candide. I wrote a third arc, a mashup of Tom Sawyer and Frankenstein. And I fell into familiar patterns. I took on too much, I filled roles with untested collaborators, and jumped into new genres, radio drama, adaptation, serialized storytelling, and doing more dramedy than straight comedy. And of course, I self-produced email, email, email. It was stressful, especially while struggling with my new limits of parenthood. But the show happened, three distinctly different story arcs with some overlap that teased an Avengers-style team-up in the second season. I was proud to release this to my unlimited audience. And I learned that it's easier to get a friend to pay to see your show at a limited place and time than to get a friend to listen to your free online content. Not even enjoy it, just listen. Because you're competing with the entire internet, with Serial and Spotify. The feedback was small for the amount of stress and work. 
It was a recipe amount of feedback, pop-up feedback. But this was a brick-and-mortar muffin store, my third in a row. I wanted, I needed a response that reflected my years of work and struggle. I began to dread releasing episodes. Sharing on social media made me feel like Breaking Bad's Walter White when he said, I truly believe there exists some combination of words. There must exist certain words in a certain specific order that can explain all of this. But I just can't ever seem to find them. It affected my relationships. It got harder to remember what I did have. So many friends who were incredibly supportive in my struggles and hard work as a new parent. But that wasn't the work I was grading myself on, where I had tied my identity. I focused on what I didn't have, and I forgot that even a great friend isn't great for everything. Creative support is just one aspect of friendship, but at my lowest point, it was the only aspect, a simple pass-fail test. It was a relief to finish the season. It all came to a head with a single haunting question. As you look back over the last, say, 10 years, what are a few projects that come to mind that are the most life-giving for you? The question wasn't directed at me. It was a singer-songwriter, Sandra McCracken, asking a guest on her podcast. But that word, life-giving, stabbed me in the heart because I didn't have a good answer. It wasn't the podcast, the musical, or the play. The writing That was always life-giving, but everything else, all the stress and anxiety attacks, were burdens I bore so I could write. And the grind didn't produce results. My tears and anger and exhaustion left a trail of mixed reviews. I needed to stop self-producing for my own sake and for the sake of my stories. But if I stopped producing, how could my scripts reach an audience? The stories I like to write, scripted narrative dialogue, required other people. And like all discomforting thoughts, I pushed it aside. I got to work on season two of Public Domain Universe. I learned from my season one mistakes and got us on track for a stronger sequel. I went back to writing my bread and butter comedy and added songs. My new story had spark, the most I've had in a first draft. The writers came together for a read-through, and we enjoyed and celebrated each other and our work and our art. We were on to something. And I couldn't do it. I thought about producing. I thought about putting this show on my back and forcing it to happen. I thought of email, auditioning strangers, finding new collaborators, anxiety attacks, marketing, and more email. I couldn't do it. I walked away from self-producing. That's not true. I produced one more sketch show with all the same stress, and then I walked away. Audience. Post-burnout. When I look back over the last 10 years, my most life-giving comedy project was performing four songs to a room of 12 people in Fort Worth, Texas. It started with someone else's idea. Tina was producing a book festival. I looked at what I had, The Raven and Lord of the Flies, two well-received book songs. I did not have a full set, 
but I had a place to workshop new songs. Our monthly show at Leaves. This collaboration was tested and it was good. The book festival would be the same arrangement with Tina producing and marketing. I could just write, practice, and play. I had limits. I looked at my capacity and I could handle one song a month. I had creative limits. I had already tested my ability to write and perform songs, but still everything I write doesn't connect with an audience. I looked at my limits of time and I had enough months for one or two songs to not work out. I had room for the process. Based on these things that I had, playing at Tina's festival made sense. So I pitched it. She said yes. I wrote, I practiced, and I played. I tested. My Gatsby song worked out. My Cats parody bombed. But it wasn't devastating because it didn't have to work out. The festival came, and I performed for 12 people in a small art gallery. I already knew 10 of them, including my wife and the four improvisers with L Society. At most, I would get two new fans tonight. But by grace, I wasn't focused on what I could get. Affirmation, validation, fame, and success. I created out of what I had and what I had to give. I had 12 people who were here to enjoy my work. I gave them my four songs, and it was good. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.